welcome to the Thoughts Podcast. Today, the podcast host, a pastor, and a theologian walk into a bar, and the host asks, why is there suffering? This month, we're on the road again, but we've still not made it to a real bar. Instead, our friends at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion at the University of Cambridge have lent us some space for a pop-up coffee bar, so many thanks to them for having us. And welcome to the Thoughts Coffee Bar. I'm afraid you'll still have to buy your own drink. Welcome to the Thought Bar. We are once more in a pop-up bar this week, a pop-up coffee shop indeed. Feels like a very fashionable hipster affair, a kind of pop-up compact and bijou. Oh, yeah. Those ones that you get in, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. telephone boxes, and now we're in an office. Under the roof. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Under the roofs. So welcome to the podcast. I'm Louise. I will be hosting because as we've established in previous episodes, I have no other qualifications relevant to getting me here and I really like being part of it. So that's what I'm doing. You're the anchor. You are the anchor. <laughs> yeah, Aww. you need to keep us in line. Linchpin. I'm doing Absolutely. a fabulous job. It's not an offensive thing, sorry. <laughs> and Andy Wadhams, pastor of Gallery Church in Birmingham, is also with us once more. Hallelujah, people said. Very quietly, the rest amen. of us, but never mind. Yeah, I'm quoting <laughs> them all. We are happy to have you. I'm the resident. I'm you the are. resident pastor because I've been on every one. Um, but and until we find a better one, a better <laughs> pastor, I'll still be here. It is because you're my current favourite. Come on now, that's it. <laughs> it's good to have favourites. Moving on. <laughs> and we are also joined by today's theologian, Bethany Solarada. Welcome, Bethany. Thank you very much. Pleasure Welcome, to be here, Bethany. I feel like a round of applause is just do this. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's just two of us now. So. We'll put a sound effect on it later. It'll Excellent. be fun. Whooping, hollering, good. cheering good. the lot. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. your surname is quite beautiful. Thank you. And I'm not going to yeah, dare to say it, it the whole time. Someone said, what are you doing this it, afternoon? I said, I'm heading off with uh, a great theologian. Bethany S. works just fine. Yes. It, 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 it's Soloretter. It's Soloretta. Austrian from from uh, the hills where the Sound of Music was uh, produced. Ah. So it's there from Klein, yeah. just north of Salzburg. Oh, now that's that's good. A nice bit of background as well. Yeah. The listeners are like, oh, I feel anchored. I know who she yeah. is. Yeah. Well, the other name that came from that area was Schwarzenegger. Oh, so they loved impossible last names starting with S in the <laughs> yes. area. They just thought. And that is a very you know. strong Austrian accent that you have, isn't it? Yeah. Very, very mm. strong. So strong. <laughs> you know, it's so deep. You can't even hear it sometimes. <laughs> it's so deep. It's in the way. Yeah. Well, yes. in fact, your Austrian accent sounds just a little bit Canadian. Indeed. Indeed it does, yes, yeah. So I'm from Edmonton uh, originally, but I, I've just moved to Edinburgh, so. Fantastic, and via Oxford, I understand. Via Oxford and Exeter and Vancouver. So. That's a round trip and a half. Yep. Some nice cities there, isn't there? Oh, yeah. I've been really That's lucky. nice, yeah. That is. And I think your accent is the first North American accent on the podcast. It's going to be really awkward if we're forgetting somebody, but I don't think Truly we are. Really <laughs> awkward. And we'll just put an edit block in here. Edit block. And we'll carry on just in case. It is definitely. So thanks for being with us. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks. Very cool. Fabulous. So we've had a little bit of background on your name, but perhaps <laughs> on your work would be very useful to this subject of conversation. Yes. So if I read out a little bit of your bio from Edinburgh Uni's website... Uh, and you can help us decode what some of that means a little bit. As a note, uh, Bethany and I did edit this slightly beforehand because part of it was outdated. Um, and Edinburgh were telling us she was still at Oxford. But this is from Edinburgh's website. Bethany Salareda is a lecturer in science and religion at the University of Edinburgh. 
She specializes in theology concerning evolution. Would you like to tell us how that fits together? Very briefly. Uh, well, I ask uh, questions about the compatibility of evolution with Christian faith, uh, particularly the grisly parts of evolution. So sort of if God is a good creator and used evolution, which needs suffering, death, extinction, all of those things to, to move on, it sort of seems like an odd way for God to create. So I sort of try and unpack how that is and why that is. And if we can still see God as good, if God created evolution. Amazing. I feel like there's room there for like a horrible history theology edition. Yeah, that oh, would be fun. Wouldn't that be good? <laughs> Fantastic. Do it. <laughs> uh, okay. And you also specialize in the problem of suffering, which as we've heard mm -hmm. ties in. Uh, and you're currently working on climate change. Indeed. So, you know, most of my work is on the grim and depressing. And so uh, <laughs> I just thought uh, I'd continue that trend and ask, what do we do if we can't stop climate change? So mm. that's what I've been working on. You know, in the midst of the pandemic, I just thought, you know, hmm, what could be worse than this? <laughs> you know what I need to think? I think what would help uh, thinking and our vibe, something more bleak. Exactly. Even. And then it makes the pandemic look good. I did, I did notice in your work that there is a tendency towards, is this just like a, I mean, I'm jumping, sorry, Lou, I'm just ruining the vibe here already. But is yeah, this great. like a... Because you seem like a jolly soul. We're sat here now. <laughs> we're all smiling. We've had a bit of a laugh and we got, we got going. And then the subjects, how does it... It seems like a juxtaposition is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Does it, does it just fit naturally or is there an integrity issue <sighs> where you think if we don't answer these questions... What are we doing? Well, I mean, I got in. I got into this kind of academic work to try and sort out my own issues with God, really. Oh, very so good. So this was this is absolutely, you know, my own pastoral uh, theology track of me trying to figure out the existential questions I had. Very uh, good. But then, but then, I mean, I don't know. I think if you spend all day thinking about very grim things, then the rest of your life seems really happy. You know, okay. I'm like, look, there's still food thing. on the table. Yeah. There's, you know, yeah. cleaner air than Cambridge has seen for centuries. You know, it, mm. uh, there's, there's all sorts of, all sorts of good things. I'm, I'm seeing the logic. I'm seeing the logic. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, there's quite a few who I passed through. I think, hmm, how could they just balance that out there? And you seem to have it. I'll bet part of it's natural as well, though. I can just tell as a vibe, you know. Yeah, I did have a friend at uni, one of my housemates, who did, um, she studied history and she did a module on uh, genocide. And it just, she did not have your approach. <laughs> I, don't, mm. I don't know if everybody's able to, but you could really tell the days when she'd had those lectures. She yes. was not a happy bunny. Who was lecturing on that and how big was the class? And I mean, I don't know. I wasn't in the I, history department. Yeah, sorry. Forgive me. It's just so many questions. <laughs> anyway, back to Bethany. <laughs> So you have a PhD in theology from the University of Exeter mm -hmm. and an MCS in interdisciplinary studies from Regent College Vancouver. What's one mm -hmm. of those? So it's a Regent College. Yeah, right? in <laughs> interdisciplinary studies is basically, so most, most people specialize in something. So they learn more and more and more until they know almost everything about almost nothing. Interdisciplinary studies do the opposite. We learn and learn and learn and learn until we know almost nothing about almost everything. So gotcha. I, I'm, I'm broadly, you know, I'm, I'm one of the generalists who kind of tries to see the big picture of what the people who are specializing do. 
That's very interesting. Nice. That sounds really So, I mean, you think like yeah. science and religion? Like, sure. y- you know, how many sciences are there? How many religions are there? Nobody can cover all that. And the idea is not to be an expert in everything, but to, to I mean, specialize in a few small questions, but to get a broad overview of, of history, of philosophy, of theology, of some of the sciences themselves, and, and be a person who's thinking in, in big picture terms. Excellent. So ideally, you're the person with all the big picture answers. <laughs> I, I prefer the term approaches. Approaches. Excellent. <laughs> answers is far too intimidating. <laughs> Fair enough. An approach is always a good start. So you are also the author of God, Evolution and Animal Suffering, Theodicy Without a Fall. Could mm-hmm. you please decode some of that? That is a, 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 a longer, uh, more boring book that is essentially my PhD thesis. So asking gotcha. that question, how could a God, go, good God create through evolution? Wow. Great. Wow. And more recently, why is there suffering? Pick your own theological expedition, which we will talk about more mm. in a little bit. Mm. But first, if we haven't been giggly enough, <laughs> it's time for a game. Yay! <laughs> And now, time for a game. Today we're playing Is It Evil? So today's game is Is It Evil? Right, this so, is a twist. This is a twist, this yeah. This is a twist. I mean, same principle, but it's is it evil? It's the same principle. What is, what is the normal game? Wow, is it science or is it sport or is it... We did, oh, is depending it on who's on. Is yeah. this like, is curling a sport? Is that... Mm. Is, that, oh, is wow. it that kind of thing, or, or is it like snowman oh, you building? On something, you on a national discussion. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Canadian, so yeah. this is. Yes, you're about to go to Edinburgh as well, where I think they'll back yeah. you up. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Here, yeah, it's definitely um, a sport. Is it recognised here in Cambridge? Yeah. Perhaps not. I don't well, know. W- my parents lived in Texas at one point, and in oh, that my. point, curling wasn't televised and it wasn't Olympic, and so they couldn't convince people that it was a sport because they're saying, "Well, you take these big frozen rocks and you throw them yeah, down yeah. ice at a target, and then people bring out brooms." and starts, you know, and, and people are like, this is just a practical joke, you know. <laughs> Even um, if you'd have set it up and shown them at an ice <laughs> rink, they'd have gone, you're winding us up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. I'd never thought about it like that. <laughs> anyway, the game, how it works. Kay. I'm going to give you each three objects, the same three objects. Right. One of you will argue that it is inherently evil. Mm-hmm. The other will argue that it is inherently good. Now, I have a caveat. No neutral, please. That is way too easy to argue that it's not inherently evil because it's neutral. Okay, we've got yeah. to we've got to take okay one or the other. Okay. So good or evil? Are you assigning which side we have I to am argue? Indeed. Okay, um, good. Yeah, we get both the side and the item at the last minute. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and the grey matter has to do some. Uh oh. <laughs> That's how this works. So, uh, Andy, I'd like you to argue that all of these things are horrifically evil. Okay. I don't even get to argue the evilness of one thing. I mean, do you want to swap? I think we need to swap. I I think we can do evil, evil, good, evil, and I'll do good, evil, good. There we are. Oh, okay, okay, Okay. yeah. Yeah. You get the middle evil. I get the middle oh, evil. It sounds like a chapter on its own, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. The middle, the middle evil. evil. I'll have to. There's middle knowledge, so maybe we could we go for that. middle evil. There's something there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, all right. right, I'm a bit terrified. Here we go again then. Object number one, starting with Andy arguing that this is evil. It's evil. It is a door handle. The door handle is evil. I tell you why, because it's a fraud. How long do I have? 
you have 23 seconds 23 remaining. 23 seconds left. It's a fraud. It's painted as something good and that it will help you. It'll open doors for you in your future and in your actual. But all it ever does is stop you when you're in a rush because it gets caught on your belt loop or your pocket, causes a lot of pain and causes incredible delay. It's evil because it's a fraud. Wrapped up as good, but causes pain and delay. Evil, evil door handle. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautifully timed. Right, Bethany, you also get 30 <laughs> seconds. I would like right. you to argue why door handles are inherently wonderful. Okay. Your time starts now. Great. Well, Andy helped me by telling me that they open doors and they, you know, allow you to explore new opportunities. But I, my initial thought was the opposite. Door handles are wonderful because they allow you to close doors. And anyone who's a parent of little children knows how important it is to be able to close a door that somebody else cannot open. And so, you know, for bathrooms, for yes. bedrooms, for so many things, I think that they are the bomb. You Very two are so good. good at timing. That was good. That was really good. You could, basically, you managed to move the argument to privacy and everybody <laughs> likes a bit of privacy. So Appealing I, to yeah. the British audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I award a point to not evil for trapping children? Is that, is that is my question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think brilliant. So when we say trap, we don't mean child catcher. No. We mean yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just preventing them from that entering the evil. room. I think yeah. preventing children from entering the room is allowed to be good. Okay, Bethany can have the point. All right, that's, on, that's on your head. Trapping children apparently <laughs> is a <laughs> It's a good thing. That was a good that was good actually. I think actually, considering time given, mm. that was quite strong. It was very strong. I had the whole first 30 seconds, though. So I assume I'll go first this next time, and then you'll have a little bit of extra time. Yeah. So you're going to argue why this object is evil. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the object is a motorway. Oh, motorways are absolutely evil for a couple of reasons. First of all, you go too fast on them. So the fuel efficiency goes down incredibly. And so given the crisis we're in, we really need to be going slower. The second reason is that you lose the sense of the land. You can't see the changes. You're just on a motorway. There's no hills. There's no valleys. There's no local character. It's just dull deadness. Very nice. Some strong arguments. Mm, yes, Andy. there were some strong arguments there. It's very good. <laughs> I'm literally just thinking, have I got a prayer here? Here we go. You've got 30 seconds on why motorways are wonderful. Off you go. Okay, well, I would say motorways are wonderful, um, inherently wonderful and not at all evil. They help many get from A to B. They help many get from one place to another at a sensible speed. I would also put this out there. Forgotten towns got to be forgotten for a reason. I know we love Lightning <laughs> McQueen. Evil. We love Lightning McQueen. What a great story that was. But the radiator springs need to be forgotten. And that's why motorways are good. I didn't even think about involving cars. Oh, that was brilliant. I should have done that. Yeah, we were all I mean, I was clutching. It was a massive bunch of straws here. I'm just clutching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've already noted that point for Bethany because you cannot insult radiator springs like that in oh, the presence. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> Are you a big cars fan? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, life is a highway as well. Isn't Poor it? Mator. There yeah. we are. Okay. All right, let's see if you can turn it around. Okay. So, evil. Evil. I'm on evil. I'm going first. You're on evil. You're going first. Okay. Right. Why is a starfish evil? Go. 
Okay. Well, a lot of people don't know this. Starfish actually are the enemy of humanity. Um, and you think, <laughs> oh, is it like a biological thing? Are they doing something to rocks and sand? The answer is no, they have. You know, deep down in the ocean where no one still really knows what's going on, that's where they run the world from. That's where they source all evil from. And so where does evil come from as a pastor? I have to deal with that question, but I always sit them down with a coffee and say, the underground layer of the, the starfish in the depths of the ocean, they are evil. They are running all evil in the world from deep in the ocean. And if you believe that, come and see me after, we'll find a doctor for you. <laughs> That's, I feel like there is a wonderful children's film in that somewhere. The Evil Starfish. Yeah. It's all yeah. the Danger Mouse, isn't it's, it, It's uh, SpongeBob's mortal enemy. Yeah, oh, very good. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Bethany, can you tell us, please, why starfish are inherently wonderful? Yeah. 30 seconds starting now. Great. So starfish are, of course, predatorial. And so any predator or keystone species in an ecosystem increases biodiversity uh, in that area by massive, massive amounts. So anywhere starfish leave, biodiversity diminishes. When they get reintroduced, they grow. Also, if you cut off one of their arms, they can regrow them, which I think is always cool. Uh, and they come in lots of fun colors. They come in red and purple and green and blue and... Outstanding. Outstanding. Three points in 30 seconds. One of which is they grow, their limbs grow back or whatever they're called. Yeah, proper science response there, wasn't but it? I like, one of, I like one of us is were, a scientist. I, I, I wonder I, if they were I'm not a scientist. I'm a theologian. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I, I, think, I think the evil cabal of... Uh, Starfish in, in in the ocean basin was was good. Yeah, well, good. Let, I think it's proved me wrong. Yeah, yeah, we can't come with it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, in all honesty, I was waiting for clowns to come up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I could run yeah. this between trick. you two. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> missed a trick on that one. What are you saying then, boss? The referee speaks. Here we go. Oh, three nil to Bethany <laughs> Salareda. <laughs> I think I have to agree, although it's a pretty brutal scoreline. Oh, sorry. I think it's the first time it's happened, though. Yeah, whitewash. Yeah. Whitewash, fair enough. So. Yeah. I do get competitive in games, I'm afraid. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I, I become evil. <laughs> I will win! <laughs> oh, we need to add the fourth item. Fourth item is Bethany Solaret. <laughs> no. Evil when playing games. Oh, very good. Well, yeah. congratulations on Thank your you. victory. Thank and you. we know Thank that's you. why you came on here today. It's absolutely. I heard there was a game and I had to be a part of it. Absolutely. So we've heard a little bit about why you got into studying suffering. Um, where do you find hope within that? Do you find hope within that? Or is it literally just the kind of perspective thing that we mentioned earlier? I do. I mean, I think I find hope in it in, in a couple of ways. I think I find hope in in God in a new way because I... When bad things happen now, my reflex isn't, why in the world did you let this happen, God? Mm. Because I think I've worked out, um, I don't know whether they're the answer, but there are approaches that help me see God as loving and kind in the midst of horrific things happening. So I think it's it's taken away that particular angst. I mean, there's still deep griefs, of course, mm. um, but it doesn't shake my faith in God at all. And so I think that's helpful. And I will say, and I'll probably get into this a bit later, but uh, when I read theodicy books eight hours a day, I did not stay bubbly and happy. You know, it was really sure. hard. Mm. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, one of, the, one of the things is that we often think, you know, if suffering happens, there's nothing we can do. But actually, 
a lot of the psychological studies kind of say the way you approach suffering changes how you suffer. Mm. Um, so you can think of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, things like that, that, yeah. that basically say the way you think about the world changes how you feel about it. And I think that's true in our theology as well, that we can prepare ourselves to suffer by thinking about why we suffer and how God is related in that so that when suffering comes, which it will, we can turn easily to God mm. rather than have a big fight with God first about why it's happening and then, you know, eventually. <laughs> and I think you have to fight with God at some point over these things. Um, but it is it is a point where you can kind of uh, come come to peace with that. And so I think that's really helpful. Yeah, and you found it really worthwhile then as well. It kind of it can be quite intimidating getting into the nitty gritty of a question like this, but you found that actually a lot of good has come out of it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think a lot of places we sort of think, oh, we could make the world better, you know, if we were just allowed to tinker with things. And actually, you start seeing like, oh, you know, um, we found a great way to take people's pain away. It's called opioids. Mm. And actually that didn't work out so well, mm. you know. True. And when I was in China, um, I went to uh, a leprosy colony of people who have Hansen's disease. And all that is is a bacterial infection that infects the pain nerves. And so as it kills their ability to feel pain, they start accidentally destroying their own bodies. Uh, they burn themselves, cut themselves, walk on broken limbs, and they just don't feel pain, so they don't stop. And mm -hmm. so you begin to, in that situation, see how necessary pain is to protect ourselves. Mm. You know, And that doesn't mean that there's never useless pain in the world, but the very ability to feel pain is actually a great good in our lives. So things like that kind of change your perspective when you start to see it. So here's, <clears throat> here's a preaching point. Yeah. Here's a preaching <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, when yeah. Jesus healed people who had leprosy, if what they had was actual leprosy, Hansen's disease, not just a skin disease, Jesus's healing gave their pain back to them. Oh, oh, take right? some notes. Take some <laughs> so notes. it's exactly the opposite of what we normally think of healing yeah. being. Yeah. And there's, um, I, there's, I think there's a quest for happiness Mm -hmm. It's happened to us perhaps over the last 50 years and beyond, maybe before then. And, of course, it's made its way into the church. And so I know that when I became a Christian and a Christian leader, I had to really, do, no, not to the level you've done it, but work out a theology of suffering. Mm -hmm. Why is it still there? Why isn't everyone healed? Is there more? So even just listening to you and your positions and your, just as you begin to explore and open the doors, hey, doors are back. Um, <laughs> We're just getting into a really interesting point there where there's there's two or three good reasons or potential moments that you might be in in your life. So really good. But I do remember, I do remember thinking, because I'm quite an upbeat guy, quite positive, life's all right in the end, you know. And But uh, as a pastor, that's not very good. <laughs> when you're sat with somebody one-on-one -on -one and the suffering is three, four years in mm -hmm. and it's difficult and you just think, okay, Does, is the answer God is not interested in them? They've done something so horrendously wrong. No. Typically yeah. not. That's not the God I read in, in the Bible for me personally. So I had to go on a journey. 
Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, embryonic compared to the stuff you've written and explored. But it was necessary, but the reason... Should it have been necessary, really? But we've all... Going right back to what I said at the beginning, there's a quest of deserved happiness. You deserve to be happy. Buy this, enjoy that, don't put up with anything, da-da-da. And it's found its way into kind of the church as well. And maybe it's done us a disservice. Mm-hmm. So that's just a pastor's actual viewpoint in mm-hmm. response to that. So actually, when I listen to some of your work... I was really excited and encouraged that not only is there reason and ideas behind the suffering and thought, but we can place them and we can say this is this scenario, this is this mm-hmm. case, this theologically could be this or this. And so it's actually super helpful, not that you meet someone in pain and say, choose from the buffet, choose from the buffet. <laughs> but actually, some people think they've got nothing to choose from, God just isn't mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's super, super helpful. So commend you on your work well, the bits off. Thank you. Yeah, Seems no, and, and like in a sense, you may not want to say choose from the buffet as they're in the midst of suffering. But the fact is, if they're going to come to any resolution, they're going to have to build their theology. Yeah. It yeah. can't just yeah. be imported whole scale. Very good. <laughs> yeah. They need to work it out in terms of their own situation. Very good. Yeah. Well, that leads us on brilliantly to mm. talk a little bit about how you wrote your more recent book, uh, Why Is There Suffering? Choose your own theological expedition. Pick your own theological expedition. Get the title right, please. It's all good. (laughs) I never remember. I'm like, I don't know, something adventure (laughs) expedition. Yeah. So the concept is a a choose your own adventure book on why is there suffering? Which, I mean, you commented on this from from the notes that we shared earlier. Um, So we exist really to deal with some of these big questions and try and. Mm enjoy exploring them find the lighter side of exploring them yeah and you have come along and taken the big question of all questions namely suffering colon why question mark and um found a kind of playful way to deal with it without kind of losing any respect for for the um issue or people who are suffering um which just kind of feels to us a like you're our kind of spirit animal theologian <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome. is just wonderful um but yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about what motivated you to put the book together in that way, to take that approach to it? Yeah. So a couple couple things. One was that I did actually find the academic study of theodicy useful in the end for the questions I had. And I wanted to make a resource that other people could basically get the fruit of that labor without having to struggle through all the upper level <laughs> philosophy you. books. Very gracious. You know, you. So yeah. it was like, we need, we need something that's accessible, that gives people the idea without the eight syllable words and the formal logic, you yes. know, because yes. I didn't like that. Uh, the other thing was that they were all grim, like nobody could talk about stubbing your toe. It was always, mm. you know, a story of the Holocaust or genocide right. or children being raped, you know, and, and I I just found that so hard to read. I, I sat there weeping, and then I couldn't concentrate on their argument anymore, which went immediately back to the sort of right. high level, if if A, then proposition A prime, da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, did you just read what I did? Because I, you mm, know, yeah. so the emotional reactions for me were so big that I couldn't pay attention to the argument they were doing. So wow. in this book, it's all very gentle examples. You know, it's it's um, 
falling feathers. It's, you know, um, I don't know, eating fruit, going down a river. You know, I mean, there, there's nothing, There's except for one chapter where I kind of give warning, there's really no examples of suffering because I think that the suffering people bring is the most relevant question wow. that they could bring. So wow. I don't, I don't want to sort of preload what the issue is because each person will bring their own. Mm. Um, the choose your own adventure part, um, that actually came out of the psychological sciences, which said basically what I said previously, that each person has to work it out on their own. Mm. And their agency, their ability to make choices when they're suffering is really important to their own recovery. Right. Whereas the books I was reading were all the author makes all the choices for you. They say this is the best option, okay. that is not so I sort of thought, how could I give agency back to the reader? In a sense, how could I have a discussion with my reader, which would be kind of like what you do in a counseling session where you'd mm. ask a question, they'd answer, and then you'd adjust how you mm. go back in, yeah, yeah. In, in relation to that. And so in sort of a mad moment, I was thinking, how does, an, how does a reader have agency in reading a book? And then I remembered reading Choose Your Own Adventure books as a kid yeah, yeah. and how you're kind of wandering through these stories. And, you know, for, for readers who don't know what they are, they're books where... Uh, they're novels that have different endings. And so at various points, you make a decision, say, you're walking through the forest, you come yeah. to a fork in the road, you want to go up towards the castle, you turn to page eight, down towards the lake, it's page 11. Mm. And so you sort of, you flip to that page. And I mean, you'd, you'd often die horrifically in those novels <laughs> and yeah. have to flip back and that kind of thing. But I wanted that <laughs> sense of people going on an adventure and making decisions that led to different theologies. So that's how I set the book out. So people mm. are choosing the paths they want to go down, then they can go back and try another route. And so this whole idea that we're not, I'm not trying to nail down an answer. I'm trying to invite people into a discussion about the theology here. Wow. Yeah. So Huge fun. I mean, there's a kind of wonderful humility to that kind of, I'm not telling you what the answer is. Mm. You need to kind of go on this journey for yourself, which... And as well, when you read the book, like you, you genuinely can't tell which one you're advocating. I mean, I can come up with some clues from the fact that you're telling me you're a Christian, but <laughs> yeah. uh, other than that, um, yeah. But then, I mean, you must have, this is a criticism you must have heard, or at least a question. Should we not be trying to point people towards something that might be a, a truth like is there not a, a truth that needs to be pointed out mm. am i am i a complete liberal relativist where Absolutely. any truth that is one. good <laughs> yeah yeah it's good um it is an important question yeah. i i think that uh, of course i do believe that there is a truth and i believe that the some answers are closer to the truth than others but I think that our perspective on truth is deeply situational. And what I mean by that is our experiences change what, what truth is relevant to us. So if I take an example like God is father, for me, I had a great father. So that mm. brings ideas of warmth and provision and fun. For somebody who's had a horrific father, that can be a really difficult metaphor yeah. to use. And so then saying something like God is our fortress is a better <laughs> yeah. truth for them to be able to take hold of, um, even if both are true, even if both are relevant, and even if God is more like a father than like a fortress. For some people, God will be more like a fortress for really good reasons. And I, I think that yeah. we need to give space in our theology 
for people's experience there, you know, and so this mm. is an extension of that. So people are like, why did you include atheist paths? I'm like, cause atheism is probably closer to God than some Christian paths. I know, you know, some forms of Christianity <laughs> wow, are pretty a, far. What a point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> you know, uh, there's real truth in that, isn't there? Sometimes <laughs> I just think, um, I sit with people, I think, I, I say, even say this sometimes, let's take God out of the equation. Yeah. I said, let's take him out and everything you think that he might be pleased with or against or, and let's just talk as human to human. And But it feels so dangerous doing that. Mm-hmm. But actually it's super helpful because we almost just go back to intuitively, well, what we've learned about God and then which of God is intuitively in us in terms of kind of kindness or love. So anyway, I totally, I couldn't agree more. I mean, wouldn't say it. I wouldn't get the, I wouldn't get the poster done. Too late for that. <laughs> but there are times where you just, you're right, you just think, well, if we could just lay down some of the burdens or, you know, of perceived God's viewpoint, yeah. lay those down and crack on, how would it look? Probably yeah. be closer to what he intended at times. Yeah, but I like uh, like Lou's point because as a pastor, I'd be really worried that um, someone comes to me with a problem. And I suppose the difference between a book and a one-on-one counselling comes in here, as in I've got the Holy Spirit in me. The bar- John talks about the barometer. The inside just helps me respond to an individual and their circumstance. And the book there has to offer a a space for everyone to come in at whatever entry point they like, which is really interesting. Does it worry you that you know a fruit? Uh, someone with a bit fruity thinking will enter the book and come out with a completely bonkers answer anyway. <laughs> are there any bonkers answers? Like, what are you advocating the book to be used as, as a counselling tool? Do you, do you hope it will be part of an arsenal of stuff like that? I think it should be used alongside other things yeah, like yeah. Christian community and yeah. pastoral leadership and, you know, all these other things. Um, so it's, it's one more way. And I, I don't think it's necessarily a book for everyone. I think it's, um, so people who've read it have either said, this is amazing. I absolutely love it. I love having an author that trusts me to make decisions and doesn't tell me what to think. And I get to, you know, and then I've had other people who've said like, I was so disoriented. I just didn't know what to do or I just, you know, it was stop and start and I was having to make decisions and I just wanted to be led through and kind of, you know, so I've had, I've really had, had both and I've had, you know, um, very strong intellectuals in both and I've had lay people have both reactions. So Uh it hasn't, it hasn't been sort of, you know, all the academics loved it and, you know, I think it's almost been more, more academics who were sort of suspicious of it. Um, right. as, as, a, as a way to do it. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's, it's a try. I mean, if you want a typical book on suffering that tells you what the answer is, there's lots of those. So this is something for the rest of us. That's what I was going to say. I think that's really good. You've braved it and you've headed out there and said, here's something different. So. I also think if people are finding it disorientating, you've probably captured life quite well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sounds yeah, familiar, yeah, that yeah. does. Yeah. But I think there's different kinds of suffering as well. Like, so I was talking about, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the pain that protects us if I stub my toe and it teaches me not to, to you know, hit, hit hard objects with that. That is really mm. one kind of suffering. The betrayal of a friend is a whole nother kind of suffering and they need different explanations. Yeah, yeah. I just don't think it's sort of a one size fits all. And so I, I you know, so I, I think part of giving different answers and different ways to think about it is because there legitimately are Good. 
different answers in different situations. Love that. I'm on board with that. I don't know if we're allowed to be this partisan. <laughs> I think so. I'm on board. Yeah. Primarily because we, we exist for a number of reasons, don't we? But one of our core values here is to remove the barriers people mm. might have and to be allowed to ask those questions. Suffering is such a big one, mm. you know, mm-hmm. from people who still haven't processed nan dying, you know, worked that through. Why did God let that happen? To, you know, um, people who life themselves, it's absolutely fine, but they look at the world and they're just heartbroken at it. And so all those can be barriers to people's journeys. And I think um, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm partisan. <laughs> I'm on the I'm, team. I'm we're, glad we're you're enjoying biased. yourself. <laughs> I'm enjoying it's myself. Good. It's good. <laughs> so I, I like this idea of kind of different angles to see more of a whole, yeah. but what happens when kind of two answers are mutually exclusive in the way that you're presenting things? Oh, good. Yeah, well, I I think then it's up to the reader to decide which one they think is right and which one Mm. they think is wrong. Or um, in the introduction to the book, I use one of those, I think it's a Victorian sort of uh, visual illusion. You know, the duck rabbit? Yes. Where if you Um, look at it one way, it looks like a duck. You look at it. So it's either a duck or a rabbit. Mm. It's not both at once. But depending on how you look at it, you can see how each of them makes sense within its frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And I think that in some of the models of God I present, say uh, a classical Thomist, God knows the whole future and has complete providence over everything versus an open theist process, you know, where where the future is unknown to God and God works with us to create the future. Those are mutually exclusive within sort of logical frames. But I think they're kind of like that duck rabbit where within the Christian tradition, you could see how you'd come to each of them given the priorities you give to different doctrines and different biblical passages and that sort of thing. So which one is right? Not really sure. Yeah. <laughs> or God is just bigger than our models can contain. <laughs> and, and so some other thing is right, you know, uh, and and we just haven't been able to to encapture it in a model. Sure, yeah. And it, I mean, if anyone's going to blow our logic up, it's probably going to be God, isn't it? So. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. likely. <laughs> yeah, it would be a worry, wouldn't it, if you fit with my small brain? Quite. <laughs> we, would, we would be in trouble. Um, so what were your favourite bits to write then of the book? Oh, I... There's a whole point where you go down this sort of river of divine action and then you end up in a lake of different models. And I, so I not only sort of had different um, positions, but I set them within a landscape. So it's sort of pilgrim's progressy where you're going up to the mountains of mystery and yeah, down down the, the river of divine action. And I just found it so much fun to just let my imagination go loose. I mean, mm. I let it go loose so far. I even included a poem I wrote, which is really dangerous because I am not a poet in any way, shape or form. Because <laughs> there's lots of poets, so, uh, <laughs> bishops and archdeacons yeah, and theologians. And I, I am love not amongst them. <laughs> And you've put yourself in amongst them. <laughs> so I can now, yeah. I mean, it was basically just so I could say I'm a published poet, but... Uh, <laughs> you snuck one in. I snuck, I snuck was, one in. It was 1% of the work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the real poem in the book is by Haley Hodges Schmid in, in the... In the um, when I in the dedication, but but you know I just I just had great fun letting my imagination go loose on the sort of illustrations I used and and that sort of thing. So I think. Um, yeah, and I, I occasionally had a lot of fun writing positions that uh, I didn't 
uh, either know very much about to start with or or that I, I disagreed with in some cases because I thought, oh, this is kind of fun. Like, how do I write convincingly as an atheist? Mm. You know, and so when I did that, then I would go to somebody who held that position and say, you need to read this and tell me if I've done it responsibly. So Richard Dawkins was right. kind enough to read over the, the atheist path. And he said, yeah, this is not a straw man. This is much how I would argue it. You know, great. But oh, that's good. So those those were fun. Richard Dawkins is he like a famous atheist? Is he at all? Um, I, some people think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I mean, heard of him. I'd heard of him. It rings a bell. It rings a bell. Yeah, the Brilliant. map as well. I have to say, there is a literal map in the book, like very Tolkien esque. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to make that reference as well. Yeah, I got great. I got a D and D map maker, brilliant guy. Seriously? Who? Yeah, he he makes them on demand for people who want D and D adventures that they've made up. So I said, look, could you do this instead? He's like, it sounds great fun. So yeah. <laughs> That is amazing. That's great. The sorts of people you can get involved with a book like this. <laughs> He's like, I've never done anything like this. I'm like, no. <laughs> Richard Dawkins, D&D map makers. Like. Yeah, just slip in your own poetry. Exactly. <laughs> been, I think I'm just exploring this now. It's wild. This is just a, a fun time. It, it, was a, it was so much fun. I, I normally I'm not I'm not a keen writer, but I really enjoyed writing this. How good is that? This book on suffering <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> was so much fun. It was so much fun. Mainly the case studies. No, we yeah. are on. <laughs> I wonder. Um, I, I wonder if you might help some of our listeners who could be at point of suffering, someone suffering they know, and if there's, they might even think, like I said right at the beginning, they might at a point where they're like, has God forgotten me or whatever. Is there like like five, three, four, five key positions in Christian tradition where actually suffering is of benefit or part of the process? So like refiner's fire might be one of them and that kind of thing. Would you be able to just kind of quickly reel those off? Is that too much of a... Yeah, no, I think, um, I think you could, you know, so you could go down the sort of God has a plan for this suffering. So God sees the end from the beginning. Right. And this is either for your good or for the good of those you love yeah you know so we don't we wouldn't always expect in that thing to say uh this this is for the good of the person who's suffering but it may provide the chance for redemption um for for those around as well so yeah. god's not going to waste it and in fact god already knows how it will work out right yeah, yeah. um then you have the ones who say you know um suffering provides an opportunity not a certainty but an right. opportunity for drawing close to god so it's kind mm. of the soul making so the idea that in in suffering we are, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Lewis's, you know, pain is God's megaphone to yeah. a, a deaf world, you know, rousing them from, you know, and, and so it's, it's the idea that it, it doesn't, it, it, our choice makes a difference and how we respond to it makes a difference. Yeah. Um, and then there's something more like an open theist approach, which would say that God never wanted this to happen either. This has happened yeah. out of the um, accident and coincidences of the world or because of the evil intentions of others. Sure. Yeah. But God will absolutely redeem it now that it has happened. Mm. So God will work to make sure that that... So even God may not know quite how that will work out in the end, mm. but God will be working to redeem that evil and you can work with God to see it redeemed. So that's that's hugely encouraging, isn't it? That there could even be three avenues, approaches, and there's, and there's more than three, obviously. Mm -hmm. 
to, to someone's moment of pain and moment of suffering. Yeah. Which is incredible. And another one is just to say, you know what, it's a mystery and sure. we can surrender yeah. to God. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't, you don't need to actually have that answer to be mm. able to love God and love the people around you and to find meaning and purpose, even if we don't know why that happened and, and mm. may never do. There's, there's a place of saying, okay, God, this is too big for me to carry. I surrender it to you. Wow. So, well, anyway, so for the, I'm just love, I love application. I love the word the truth of it and then an application of course it's different all across the board so sorry if we went down a bit of a rabbit hole there but hugely helpful i think i think you kind of preempted uh, my question a little bit because i was going to ask you uh, bethany if you could talk us through um some of the possible responses to your first question in the book and their applica- their implications so your first question is what is god like mm-hmm. and your first answer is god is good and loves us which leads to mm the implications that uh, you've just given in response to Andy's question. Uh, You do have two further responses available. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so there's the God is loving and powerful. Then there's the God is powerful, but not necessarily loving. So God exists. And so in this, I'm working with people like religious naturalists or someone like Wesley Wildman, who will say, you know what? God is not in the caring business. To ask God to care is asking entirely the wrong thing. God is the ground of all being and delights in, you know, Mm. you and then delights in the piranha that eats you, you know. (laughs) And and so so God is just for things being themselves, regardless of whether they're good or bad. And those aren't categories that God would apply in the first place. So so that that's another way to think of God. And you could think of sort of or a deist God where God sort of set the the world in motion, but isn't particularly interested in it anymore. And then there is, well, there is no God at all. And of course, in that sense, you have no reason to think the world should be other than it is, except for what we could do differently. Mm. Um, but then you don't really have grounds for a protest either, because there is no ordering principle that could have made it better. You know, the only the only thing to protest is other people's actions and, and yeah. our own. Sure. So I know, um, as we said, you've deliberately written the book quite neutrally and to give people the freedom. But being a Christian does give a little bit away about what you think. So some of these are not your chosen answers. I wonder if you would mind talking us through a little bit how you then would respond to those. Um, So in what ways you think that, say... um, this idea that God is neutral, how is that flawed and why is believing in a loving God better? Mm. Does that make sense? Are you are you asking me to sort of tip my hands and say what I believe? Is that what you're saying? I mean, I'd love to know that, but I not mean, necessarily so just in terms of... To, yeah. If it doesn't yeah, damage the yeah, quest of yeah, the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... Uh, I mean, I certainly find it better to believe in a loving God, but I, I think, I, I mean, it, my path into faith wasn't because I sort of rationally thought through the answers and then thought, ah, oh, yes, there's the best evidence sure. for this one. I mean, I was taught to love 
Jesus as a child and kind of as a side thing of loving horses. I loved horses. I went out to riding camps that were evangelical and they told me about Jesus and I, you know, took it all on board. <laughs> oh, so I saw. Yeah, a little segue there. Some of those messages, <laughs> they've been preparing them elsewhere. Horse camp, right. Okay, journeys with Jesus, trails. You could have just... Yeah, done, oh yeah. Oh, there we I, go. I'm there we there. go. I'm, the next one is going to be a horseback adventure book. <laughs> yes, come on. come on. So, yeah, so I, you know, so I think it's it's kind of like if if somebody said like, well, you know, why do you like speaking English better than another language? You're like, well, I just know it. Like I'm I'm mm. inside it. I can't I can't compare whether one language is more beautiful or truer than another. But it is my heart's language, and and there I stand. So I think when it comes to my Christianity, I don't necessarily try and defend it on on its rational grounds i just sort of say i've mm. i've been pickled by christianity i can't <laughs> taste of anything else now i think that's really good to say to be fair isn't it because you know if a lot of people try and say i'm aware of my bias and so therefore it doesn't count in this but all of our bias do count don't they in the most absolutely so yeah 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 Great. so yeah <laughs> That's fair enough. Okay, so if we're not going to pin down a favourite model or even um, argue against any of them, you do, um, as we've said, have several models for who God is. And do you have a kind of favourite way of looking at God? Yeah, I think um, this is where I would say sort of I can see the logical um, uh, paths that people use to get towards some of the other models. But most Mm. people would associate me um, and I'd probably associate myself with that sort of open theist, um, process theist influenced approach, which says God doesn't intend evil, but given that it's happened, God will work to fix it. And so uh, for when I first encountered it, I was really freaked out by it. Sure. God doesn't know the future. Then how does God control? It's like, well, actually, God doesn't tend to control. God God tends to work with, you know, mm. and so the the image in that sort of view is not of a strict authoritarian who's sort of making sure the the train runs on time. It's much more like a, a jazz musician working with us amateurs who, when we make mistakes, the master incorporates those mistakes into the whole song. You know, if you think uh, Silmarillion, you know, Iluvatar taking Melkor's, okay, I'm going to geek out here. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> you know, Melkor tries to ruin the song and Iluvatar just keeps weaving it into deeper, richer melodies. And I think that's the Beautiful. way God redeems our evil. Uh, you know, you, you look at the cross and you see the deepest evil, um, and yet it's not by preventing it that God works through it. God works through death and out the other side mm. into, into the redemption of the world. And I, so, I, you know, I think that there's a call and response between created and creator that a, a traditional classical view of God wouldn't have. Um, but I think that those models have beauties of their own as well. That's sure. so beautiful beautiful that was great big fan there we could have carried on listening forever (laughs) really getting into the moment Mm. okay we've got just a few minutes left so could you tell us Mm. a little bit briefly about your current work 
on uh, climate change. It's on climate change. Yeah, it is. So uh, in the midst of the, just before the pandemic, I got a new research project to work on ecological restoration. I thought, this is good. I'm going to leave the grim aside and move on to like straightforward <laughs> hope, you yeah. know, going to yeah. work in the Canadian Rockies. And then COVID hit. And instead of spending weeks in the Rockies with scientists, I sat in my flat alone in Oxford uh, and while I was there, I was reading all these eco-theologians who were just kind of saying, you know, uh, climate change and, and the pressures we're putting on the earth are bad. But as long as everybody changes everything they're doing by tomorrow, we'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I started going, yeah, I somehow don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, not the least because even with all the cutbacks we made in in the pandemic, in the lockdowns, yeah. you know, we we cut emissions by about a fifth for about three months. Mm -hmm. You know, so it just even even the biggest things we can do as individuals just won't change these systems that are doing this. So I started thinking about another grim question. So you of, pushed it again yeah. to its end. What do we do if we can't stop climate change? And what does that, that mean? It's really good. So yeah, so I mean it, it's looking partially at um sort of you know, so and some of it, I started looking sort of geologically at sort of do we have a planetary norm? And it turns out this climate has been around for about 11,000 years. If you look at the last half million years, the average temperature was four degrees colder, you know, and in that climate, you know, the, the recent average, all of us would be under ice right now. You know, Cambridge would be mm. covered with glaciers. And in the natural course of things, that's what the Earth would have returned to had we not um, oh. burnt all of the CO2. Now, what we're heading to is a world without glaciers or ice caps. I thought, oh, that must be disastrous. But if you look longer, mm. the entire time dinosaurs were on Earth, 100 million years, the lowest temperatures were about seven degrees warmer than now. So mm. the world can be much hotter than this and life can thrive. The problem is human life mm. and the infrastructure yeah. that we rely yeah. on is not suitable for that change and the pace of change. So there are still real, um, real challenges we'll be facing. But if we stop kind of thinking that we can control the world and start saying, how can we, how can we work with the changes? How can we help prevent suffering? as yeah, as yeah. these changes occur because if we just keep saying we're going to turn it around we're going to turn it around we're going to turn it around until our cities are flooding mm -hmm. it's too late if we start saying you know what let's start putting economic um things in place for people to move out of crowded cities that are yeah, you know yeah, on yeah. ocean fronts yeah. help them move inland now then in 30 years we prevent a massive crisis but human nature is Mm. Like not to look the disaster in the face, to pretend it still won't happen. And I think we're just past the point where we can still keep convincing ourselves that things will go back to quote unquote mm. normal. And is there a movement of work like this kind of happening and just beginning to raise its head now? Absolutely. So. Yeah. So scientists are talking more about adaptation than mitigation. Right. Um, so even if you're thinking about w when we see a, a, a species like a plant species growing in a place where it hasn't done previously, we tend to call it... Invasive. Invasive, right? I feel like I passed the Why? exam. Why? <laughs> so, so good. Oh, well done. <laughs> well done. You've been listening uh, to, to, to the side. But, but why don't we call them migrating? 
right? As okay. that becomes a new cultural climate for them, that's how we need to see them because they're not invading so much as they're moving into new spaces because their old spaces um, are going to become uninhabitable and yeah. new ones. And we can actually help them migrate. So we can take an ecosystem where you've got all this sort of levels of this eats that, eats that, eats that, and one of them is dying out, leaving a gap. We can take a related species from, say, a drier area and introduce it so that that food source, that link in the chain, isn't lost. But that requires us to stop thinking about restoration being restoring backwards to some norm that we had and instead thinking about how do we shape the future. And people get all upset about this, right? Because they're like, yeah. oh, my goodness, you know. But it's like, actually. I can't believe you're giving up. <laughs> we, I can't believe it. <laughs> we, you know. Uh, you would have to rip every snowdrop out of Britain to have a, a natural environment. You know, you'd have to mm -hmm. kill half the deer that live here. You'd have to, you know, you know. so we live in a massively human-shaped environment already. Yeah. And so yeah. this idea, so when people talk about restoration, the scientists go like, restore to what? The last ice age, 200 years ago, 800 years ago, yeah. 5,000 years ago. I mean, what? There, there is no norm. The actual reality is change. And so thinking, okay, let's think about that. Let's approach the challenges with the idea that change will happen rather than that we can control change. Okay. That's fascinating. Uh, if any listeners want to follow your work on that, where can we find it? Or where will we be able to find it when, ah. when it comes out? Well, I think um, I haven't written a book on that yet. There's a few articles, There's one in Christian Century, one that's coming out in, I think, Modern Believing is the name of the journal. Uh, so there, there's a few, a few articles um, that are out there. And then I've spoken on a few other podcasts. So I think the Biologos one and... Um, a few, a few others where I've explored these issues. If they can spell my last name and look me up, there's a couple lectures I've given on YouTube as well. That will helpfully be in the podcast title, so I'm sure we can manage that. Fab. <laughs> be in the show notes. It'll be. In, have you got an Instagram? Have you for us? No, normal I haven't. No Instagram. No, I've got Facebook, but Facebook, I don't really use Twitter. it. No. Twitter. no. no. Website. I, they, well, clearly not. <laughs> <laughs> my new institution still is pointing you to my old institution. So, uh, no, no, no. But if you if you can spell my name, I'm the only Bethany Solid writer in the world, so you can That's find my stuff impressive. very easily. Brilliant. It is impressive, unique, and yeah, unique work as well, which we've mm. really loved getting into. And thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been wonderful. It's been so intriguing and interesting, and on such dark topics so hopeful and real so um great thank you so much it's been a pleasure to be here thanks for joining us i'll put details of bethany's work in the show notes next for us is a science and faith in the second city event with reverend professor john swinton entitled my mental health and spirituality and that is this week this thursday the 29th of september John worked as a mental health nurse before becoming a theologian, and that has motivated him to ask some great questions. Then very soon after that, on Wednesday 12th of October, we have Professor Glyn Harrison on making sense of our identity in the 21st century world. For both of these, you can book tickets or register for the live stream at scienceandfaith.co.uk. 
We'd also love it if you followed Thought on Instagram at Now There's a Thought, which looks exactly like Now Teresa Thought, but that's just a happy coincidence. If your name is Teresa and you'd like to share your thoughts on the podcast and help us to live up to our Instagram handle, please get in touch. You can message us on Instagram at Now There's a Thought or email Now There's a Thought at c3gallery.church. And those contact details are also good if your name isn't Teresa. We'd love to hear from you too. Finally, do subscribe to this podcast channel for future trips to the Thought Bar and rate and review this podcast. It really helps us. Tell your friends if you enjoy the podcast, but not if you don't. That's no help.